Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. Today I welcome WSOP bracelet winner Alex Epstein aka Thalo Poker on The Grid to discuss a thrilling hand with 9-6 offsuit. This hand comes from the 2019 10k short deck event where Alex faced Poker Beast Chance Corneth in a critical hand. Spoiler alert, he did win the event making his first ever WSOP cash a victory for over $295,000, which he followed up a few weeks later with an even bigger score, 350K plus in a high roller event in his main game, PLO. So I asked him to bring me a bad hand on the grid for this show, and concerning its short deck, you can't get much worse than a 9-6 offsuit, so thank you. Yeah, no problem. I I, uh, was trying to fill the obligations of a bad hand while removing some of the worst cards from the deck. Since I'm uh, not much of a a no limit hold'em player, if uh, if the full deck's involved, but this is is probably the most memorable hand of my life, so it worked out pretty well. So short deck for those of us um, who don't play a lot of it, can you give us a quick rundown on the differences in the rules? Yeah, I mean it's essentially no limit hold'em. The deuces through fives are removed from the deck. And then uh, for straights, the ace still plays low. So uh, you have the ace, six, seven, eight, nine straight possibility. There's another slight modification where flushes beat a full house, but that happens rarely. And for the purpose of this story is, is pretty irrelevant. And so this 10K um, WSOP event, this was the first ever WSOP short deck event, right? Yeah. So this was really strange because this was the first ever big short deck tournament in the US. And for whatever reason, the World Series decided just to throw it up as a 10K. There was no 1500 going into it. There was nothing like that. They just put up one single short deck tournament for a $10,000 buy-in. And that really skewed the field towards some of the very wealthy standard sort of semi-recreational, semi-pro players that we get in a lot of these fields, like the Dan Shack types. And then the super crushers took away a lot of the the fun players. So it actually made it a, a really interesting field for a first ever event. Yeah. And how did you end up deciding to play this event? <laughs> Not very intelligently is the honest answer to that. I have a pretty funny quote that a couple of my friends have mocked me for in my post-win interview. They actually asked me that. And, and my response was, well, I was on a PLO downswing and I wanted to find an event with more variance. And that's, to be honest, that really is what happened. I had started my summer just playing PLO cash, which is all I had really planned to do. I got a little bit frustrated with some of the results. I, I felt I was playing very well, but was on a bit of a, a downswing. Um, and variance had not been on my side. And I wanted to just sort of shot take and, and take my mind off, off PLO for a little bit. 
Short Deck was a game that I was familiar with from actually the Run It Up guys, Jason Somerville's company. We played at Run It Up Reno a few times. I had done very well. Um, I had studied the game a little bit, which I think is more than a number of the people in the tournament could say who were just in there to try it out and um, decided to take a chance. So funny, at the time that Short Deck became popular, I was making some videos on Run It Once about open face and whatnot. And it occurred to me this would be a, a fun game to study the math of, but it didn't seem like there was anything around like, wasn't like a solver, at least not a public one. I mean, there were some private ones. There were, there were, there were, and still are. Short deck, sort of where it is now, and even even a year ago, brings me back to where PLO was when, like, the rumors of um, the super solver were out there, but nobody with Ike and stuff like that, but nobody really knew for sure. Um, Short deck is still sort of floating in that place where. A lot of the information is very tightly controlled and very private, but the games are huge. So people are trying to access it as quickly as possible. And because of that, the skill gaps are very, very wide. Yeah, you know, I got that vibe because I remember posting it in some chat group and like the the silence that I got was like indicative that the answer was yes, but that nobody wanted to tell me more about it. Right. That <laughs> that That is probably very accurate. That was a, I'm glad that was a good read. But in any case, yeah. it seems like it would be easier. There's fewer combinations. It wouldn't seem like it would be a very hugely difficult task to, you know, at least create some kind of rudimentary program to run equities and whatnot in this short deck game. Right. The issue really is the adjustment to the anti structure that short deck plays with. So it's not a traditional, I guess I should have mentioned that when talking about the difference. It's not a traditional big blind, small blind. It's everybody antis and then the button antis double. So because of that, there's just a ton of dead money in the pot. And since it's a no limit game, that like leads towards a lot of overbetting and a lot of aggression. Short deck actually plays, and one of the reasons I enjoyed and found myself good at it was because it actually gravitates more towards PLO strategy in terms of short deck is about equity denial, where no limit hold'em is a little bit more about equity realization. So because of that and, and those sort of overlapping strategies of, of hands run very close in equity and you're just trying to deny as much as possible from your opponents, I was able to, in my opinion, pick up the strategy relatively quickly um, since that's that's how you study PLO. It was no limit, right? It is no limit, right? Okay. But even though it's no limit because of the way the math works in short deck, equities just run very, very close. So your strategies are often built around equity denial in a way that, that they're not in no limit hold'em. So what was an example of something that you picked up on in short deck that it seemed like some other, you know, smart no limit players were a little bit slower to pick up on because they don't play PLO or because they just didn't study some aspect of it. I guess we're f far enough out now that um, I don't I don't mind too much talking certain aspects of short deck strategy. I think when the game first started and, and this was huge during during the tournament that I was playing in, you had people shoving similar no limit hold'em ranges at similar stack depths. So people were looking at their let's say 50 big blinds or 50 anti stack depth. And then they were doing the math is like dividing that by two because you had to post two antis on the button and thinking, I'm going to play this like I have 25 big blinds. And in reality, that, that's not even remotely close to how you play short deck because of the amount of dead money that's in every pot and how much each orbit costs you because you're anting every hand. So I think that was the clearest error that probably half the field or more was making is they were trying to make a comparison to no limit hold them stack depths and play their hands accordingly when in reality that that's just not even close to, to how you should be calculating your hands. So they were jamming too frequently 
people were jamming. <laughs> it's sort of weird. They were jamming certain hands too wide and certain hands too tight. There's a little bit of a, a mix there depending on on um, what hands you play. But most importantly, people were far too tentative post-flop. Once you got post-flop, there were a lot of spots where simply jamming to deny equity is correct. And people are very used to playing based on sort of that short stack reduced SBR of no limit hold'em where equities don't run very close, being able to play small ball and go for multiple streets um, of aggression to try to put pressure on with range advantages and things like that, that that just don't apply in short deck because of how close the equities run post-flop with, with certain hands. So there were big mistakes being played post-flop from shorter stacks where the correct play, and this is, sounds very strange to a lot of no-limit players, but is just to open shove a lot of the time, even post-flop. And people simply were not doing that and were not adjusting. That's really interesting because I think that in general, there is this like slight bias towards small bet sizings because they're like a little cooler because, you know, you can, you know, add more streets. Yep. So you're just saying that a lot of these short deck hands are, there just wasn't a, a good 25 or 30%, you know, C-bet size. Right. Like, uh, for example, I might actually start to embarrass myself now because I haven't studied or played short deck in a solid 12 months mm -hmm. at this point. But your equity, like if you have top pair versus bottom pair in no limit hold'em compared to short deck, a better example would be an over pair no limit hold'em versus a flocked just a single pair. So let's say you have kings versus like 10-9 uh, on a 7-10 queen board, right? Your equity is about 2.25 times what it would be a no limit hold'em. Uh, the player behind has about 2.25 times the equity that they would have. So those similar types of small bets, putting pressure on wider ranges that you would use in no limit hold'em just don't work. They, they don't serve the same purpose in any way because the person is actually very much priced in and is getting better than the odds that you think you're laying them. So people who hadn't run the math on these spots and don't know, for example, like what the percentages to actually hit a pair plus gutter are, or you know how much additional equity a backdoor straight draw gives you in short deck, things like that. You're just doing the wrong calculations when you're, when you're betting and you're often laying pot odds that are far too good, allowing people to catch up too often. And then, and then when you have a short stack, which you often do in tournaments, because tournaments end up naturally playing shorter, by using those smaller bet sizing, you're just over time when percentages run. So when equities run so close, you're going to get sucked out on eventually and go bust. So it, it, it creates this dynamic where you're basically inevitably setting yourself up to lose. That makes a lot of sense because in No Limit Hold'em, some of those things like the backdoor straight draw aren't even like, you know, consciously added into the calculations because it's somewhat right. negligible. And it's very significant in short deck. I mean, when, when you're pricing somebody in repeatedly for 35 to 40 percent, you're going to have a hard time holding as a short stack over multiple hands. Whereas in Hold'em, you might only be pricing somebody in at 15 to 20 percent post-flop. So in this particular hand, um, how many people were left in the tournament and... What was the dynamic like? The reason I find this hand so interesting is I had both a, a personal and tournament dynamic going with chance at the time. I was very clearly the quote unquote amateur player at the table. Nobody really knew who I was, which was very much to my benefit. And chance through the, the entire final table was very much the table captain. He had come in with, and, and this is uh, not hyperbole, a sparkly unicorn hat on, was constantly sort of pausing the action to buy his rail drinks, was very loud and just comfortable in that spot. He's been, been there many times and wanted to make sure everybody knew that. 
and we had come in as, as two of the bigger stacks. So I, from both an, an ego point of view and a strategy point of view, had tried to make it very clear early on that I, I was not going to let Chance just get away with being table captain and run over the tournament, despite the fact that he probably felt that he could and, and had no idea who I was. So we had butted heads both in hands and verbally throughout that final table. In fact, leading toward to a few very, very cringy tweets from certain famous poker players in the world, Daniel Negreanu, among others, about Chance and I during that. So going into this hand, we, we had uh, a couple layers of personal and table dynamics going on. We were each at about 2 million in chips with four people left in the tournament. And the other two short stacks were both each around 500,000 in chips. So the ICM pressure at the time was huge. I think it was probably a $200,000 pay jump. It was about, I believe it was about 90,000 for fourth and 295,000 for first. So if one of us were to bust in fourth, it would be very problematic. I was aware of this and, and sort of because of that expected him to try to put a lot of pressure on me based on the fact that I'm the amateur player and would be, would be more sensitive to those type of pay jumps. Right. So you were in the button and what's your opening range like in this situation with short deck? Do you have folds? Almost 100% in this situation. Okay. So I'm on the button with Chance in the big blind. He's going to have to play. Well, he certainly doesn't have to. Theoretically, playing with correct ICM pressure, he's going to have to play fairly tight in this spot just because, again, either one of us going out would just be such a disaster with with the two super short stacks having both only about a, a quarter of our chips. So even though I know Chance is going to want to play back at me, I'm opening pretty close to 100% there and, and could probably talk myself into opening just about 100%. Obviously, we know seven deuce or three deuce, depending on the situation, the worst hand and no limit hold them. And Jack six offsuit. Okay, Jack six. I was wondering if it was king six because fewer straights, but no. No, the the Jack six is the, uh, the worst hand in, in short deck. And there was actually, this is how this is how bad some people were playing. There was actually a period of time where there was an argument about what the worst hand was because people were had that much misinformation um, that, they, they, that they couldn't even figure out which the worst starting hand in, in the game was. It is jack six off for sure. And then really any non-straight offsuit combination is a disaster. And this is pretty intuitive, but because the deck is shorter, just way more straights get made, right? You just have a lot more connected cards that end up coming out because you're removing a chunk of the deck. So because way more straights end up getting made, having connectivity is extremely important. So hands like jack six, queen seven, king eight, things like that, where, where, where you don't have two cards that can work together to make a straight, those are really disaster type hands. Right, and what was the other hand that people thought was the worst hand besides jack six? Six six for a while was considered the worst hand because even if you make a set, sets just don't hold up in short deck very often. And if you do make a set, you're never going to set over set anybody in that. You're never going to get paid off by worse. So there was a lot of thinking along the lines of you have very bad reverse implied odds with 6-6, six, six, even when you do make your hand. And because of that, that's one of the worst hands to play. Small pairs in general. Yeah, and I heard there were some versions of short deck where the sets were beating the straights. And then, of course... Yeah, we don't want to talk about those. Okay. those were, that was something that a couple online sites tried to push through with their rule sets, and, and that is not an enjoyable way to play. No, it's horrible because there's too many hands you can't play if the straights don't Correct. count. I, I, yeah. I would not... Anybody who's interested in short deck, I would not recommend playing with that rule set. It is just much worse. I didn't play that many hands with this game, but when I played with those rules, it did seem like a not a great way to play the game, indeed. So this is interesting. Okay, so Jack-6 is the worst hand. You have 
nine six, which is a lot better because of all the straight potentials, of course. So uh, a lot better is being very generous. It's better. <laughs> it's better. Okay. Nine six offsuit is is still nine six offsuit, but if I'm opening ninety five percent, it's going to qualify. And um, do they have the jack six game in um, short tech then, like the seven deuce game? You know what we. Somehow, in all the props I've played, I don't think we actually ever played that game. No. All right. Well, there's a new one for you. And <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 you're gonna make me want to go play some short deck cash and put in a jack six game. Love it. Love it. That's that's what we try to do here at the grid. So this hand, nine, obviously, chance defends. You know, he likes to play a lot of hands, of course. In this case, um, is there a lot of three betting from the big blind in in this uh, short deck situation? Really dependent on stack depth and short deck. There's a lot of three bet jamming in general, again, because of equity denial. Mm -hmm. I would say from anything really under 70 andes, you can justify a three bet jam in short deck. And and we actually have seen some people do it up to as large as uh, 100 andy stacks recently um, as the game continues to evolve and people realize just how important equity denial is. In this setting, you're not going to see much of it because, again, we the, the ICM pressure is so huge that him risking a large three bet at a position like that, which would lead him to three betting larger, would just be very challenging. It, it, it's tough to have much in the way of three bet bluffs there with with the amount of ICM pressure that that's being applied. So he defends and then what happened? Flop play ends up being pretty standard. We actually get a mostly standard hand until the river. Flop comes out 70 queen rainbow. So um, I flop the open ender. Pretty good flop for me. He checks. I see bet about half pot and he calls. Standard so far. Uh, we get a jack of hearts turn, bringing in backdoor hearts. I, I forget exactly which. I think it was the queen of hearts on the flop. But the jack of hearts turn comes in and goes check, check. The reason that I check behind there, and that might surprise a lot of people from Hold'em backgrounds, or, or even actually from, from PLO backgrounds, is the exact opposite of what I'm talking about with equity denial, or I would say the inverse of what I'm talking about with equity denial. My risk there of betting that open-ended straight draw is open-ended straight draws actually have a, even with one card left, have, have obviously a substantially higher chance of coming in than they do in in no limit, in, in standard no limit. So I would be terrified in that spot of betting and getting raised. Any sort of check raise there puts me in a spot where I essentially have to fold with a hand that I would love to see a free river on and try to realize the equity that I do have. So there's also a number of rivers that I'm, I'd be very comfortable bluffing on. So I think the check behind there is is very standard in a spot that some no limit players might look at and say, yeah, you should be applying pressure there. In my case, I, I think... I think my hand has good river visibility. Um, I think my bluffs are very clear. And then obviously the value bets are very clear. So um, seems like a, a pretty standard standard spot. I also have one heart in my hand, which is pretty relevant. Flushes are pretty rare in short deck. You have a, a less of a chance of making a flush than you do a, a full house. If you flop a flush draw, and man, I this is really bad that I don't remember this. I believe it is 31%. Uh, it's either 30.5% or 31.5%. I just don't remember. But to make your flush, um, if it's unblocked, substantially lower than it is in, in no limit hold'em. Because there's five outs, right? Yeah. The extent of my short deck strategy is that it's the rule of six instead of the rule of four. So Exactly. I really, it's it's bad. I really, I, I have essentially ignored short deck for about 12 months. I've, I've forgotten a ton of what I've studied. I've just been so deep in the PLO rabbit hole. But um, so having the one heart, Gives me a lot of protection on the on the flush draw board, so I'm a lot less worried about a heart coming in. Right. So it was seven eight queen rainbow jack right. bringing two hearts. Yep. And um, then uh, it went check check on the turn, and the river got very interesting to say the least. 
Yeah, the river got quite spicy. So uh, the river comes the 10 of hearts, which is obviously one of the most, most interesting cards in the deck. I make the small straight. It also brings in hearts. So I, at this point, blocking hearts and certainly 10-9 is represented in chances range, but I think 10-9 check raises flop at a at least moderately high frequency. It's one of your better flop check raises. Uh, having the nut open-ended straight draw in short deck is extremely valuable and chance is pretty aggressive. This is would sort of go back to the equity that I think we've talked about. I think that just plays uh, at a high frequency as a raise. So I've discounted that a bit from his hand. Now, given the ICM pressure, he certainly could play it as a check call, but I think it's less likely. So chance leads river for half pot. I think it's fine with both bluffs and value to have a pretty high frequency lead there. He can expect me to play relatively tentative from the button if I have even B plus type showdown value. It's going to be hard for me to go for thin value and risk getting raised given the ICM pressure. So I would assume he's going to expect a decent number of check behinds, even with with some B to B plus quality value hands. So because of that, if if he has something like Queen Jack or even Queen 10, any sort of set, he he could very well have had 10-10 or Jack Jack in this spot. And then just a, a whole multitude of 10x bluffs um, or 9x bluffs in his range. I, I think I could expect him to lead there. So I thought about it for a bit and decided my hand was was worth a raise and could get called by worse and put in a medium-sized raise. I, I think I made it about like two and a half X his bet. He tanks, puts in a time bank, and this is this is played with time bank chips, and ends up jamming on me. I remember my emotions at the time. My immediate re- emotion was excitement because of the table dynamic we had. I thought he was just on a personal level weighted towards bluffs. And then I realized that this was probably the biggest spot of my life to date in poker and thought it through a bit more and put in a time bank. And it was on on the live stream and stuff. And, and what I even said at the time before making the call was... I basically told him, you know, in this spot, if you got it, you got it. But I'm pretty sure from my study with the nine of hearts, my hand's just a call. Without the heart, it would be a fold here. I don't think I'm allowed to fold when when I have the nine of hearts and end up making the call. And yeah, he turned over, uh, I believe the 10-7. So he had bottom pair and a straight blocker, no hearts in his hand and and was really just trying to put maximum pressure on me in, in a huge ICM spot. Um, in a spot that he thought he could, he could bully me off, off the hands since, you know, folding, I would still be comfortably second in chips and, and be set up for my biggest cash to date where by calling, I could potentially be punting $200,000, but yeah, was, was able to find the call and then have a absolutely massive lead going into three handed and, and actually ended up winning on a three handed all in a, a, just a few hands later. Yeah. So you got him down to like almost no chips. I think he was left with with like one round of, of chips, like a, a four and a half antes or something after that. Let's take this back because, you know, clearly you've done a lot of work in poker and you pick things up quickly. But the interesting part about this hand is that it turned out that when you looked it up, some of the things were different, right? Than what you originally remember. Yeah, for whatever reason, a year later when I was recounting this hand, it was just one of those things that that I, in my mind, had misremembered the hand. Like the, the action was very similar. I had the straight draw. He had the same blockers. I literally just had like the pips wrong on all the cards. 
which I, I think for the last 12 months had been wrong in my memory. I actually, I had 10 eight on a nine seven board and I just like, I, I inverted some of the hand, which, and just had, had pipped it up for whatever reason. Yeah, they, it essentially plays out the same way, despite my inability to remember the biggest hand of my life. So in the end, like you still had the, the, the bluff catcher. So what you remembered was basically like the feeling and the concept. Right. And it was it, the hand played out. The, the numbers were essentially the same. I just had them all off basically by one. All the value of the cards were all off basically by a card. So instead of nine, six with a nine of hearts, you had 10, eight with a 10 of hearts, right? Right. And ended up rivering the straight with the heart blocker and making the exact same type call. That's amazing. That's funny. I don't even know how that happens. For the last 12 months, I've literally just had the hand in my mind incorrectly. And you've told people about the hand as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Much to my embarrassment. Well, I think it's funny though, because it just shows the way that memory functions, I think, in poker and in storytelling in that like... Once you tell a story a certain way to yourself, it just kind of like crystallizes in your head, right? Yeah, it was the big card was the nine of hearts on the river, right? So I think somehow in my mind, the nine of hearts was in my hand. But because that was the most impactful card of the hands, and that's where all the decisions came from was that nine of hearts river. And in my mind, that was in my hand. So I just sort of like flipped the 10 of hearts river actually being in my hand and the nine of hearts actually being on the river. But I thought it was in my hand. Yeah, I opened the 10 of hearts and the, the flop was six, seven queen. So it was very close and it still was the jack of hearts on the turn, bringing the backdoor flush draw and heart draw and the river was the nine of hearts. So I made the gutter in the hands and had had similar and chance had the eight, six. So he still had bottom pair with the straight blocker. So it was again, very, very similar. I just tweaked the exact holdings in my mind. And I, I think it was because of the importance of that nine of hearts river. Like that was the card that stood out so much to me. So in my memory, it was just in my hand this whole time. <laughs> That's funny. And so when you looked it up online, um, I think you actually replayed the tape on Poker Go before the podcast. Is that right? Yeah, it was. So I was trying to look up the hand and I, I played a clip of the hand just to make sure that I had everything right. I wanted to make sure I remembered some of the table talk and stuff like that. And when I saw that I had the hand wrong in my mind, I was quite embarrassed. I wasn't quite, I, I wasn't sure what to message you, especially since this is the grid. It's about a specific hand. I had to, I had to send you the, the very, the very uh, ashamed message of, uh, by the way, I, this hand that I told you is the most important hand that I've ever played. I, I misremembered. That's hilarious though. I mean, I think it's funny in a way, but maybe it's also that, you know, when you take these winner photos, usually you take the winner photo with the hand that you actually won, even if it's just like, you know, you, you had two big, your opponent had two big lines and you just take the rest of your chips. Whereas maybe it should be the most memorable hand. And the other thing that, that fascinates me is that, you know, you read a lot about the weakness of like eyewitness accounts and recollected memory. Yep. And I think that it's, it's funny because it must have just had shocked you that you were totally wrong about it. But when there's like video evidence, you know, there's not much you can say. Yes, I was very surprised. <laughs> I was very surprised to see that I, I got the, the hand wrong. And I, you know what, I can't, it's not like I had gone back and studied that final table or anything. So I guess I, I shouldn't have been as surprised. That was a roller coaster of a summer. Um, and there were a lot of crazy hands from that summer, and including one that happened just 12 hands later when I, I won the three-way all-in with the Jack-10, which is the winner's, the winner's photo. So there were, there were a lot of hands to remember. I just, it's especially entertaining to me that we 
set your, your podcast is for one specific hand. And I couldn't, I misremembered the one specific hand that we were supposed to be talking about. Well, there was Nick Schulman who took um, Jack Fora off on the grade and his hand, the flop came 993. And he started making a lot of big bets in this cash game in New York City because he had um, 97 suited. Unfortunately, he got called down and then he looked back in his hand and had to turn over Jack Four. <laughs> so you know what? I'm in good company of misremembered hands on the grid then. Exactly. Because as a new poker commentator myself, doing, currently doing some of the, the Galfon Challenge commentary and just getting into that, the biggest compliment that I've received in my commentary, my short commentary career is that I remind people of Nick Schulman. So I'll take all the Schulman comparisons I can get in this aspect. Yeah, I love it. And what about your memory in general, though? Like, because I think that a lot of people, whether it's chess or PLO, they talk about memory for patterns rather than memory for exact details. And it seems like that might be particularly pertinent to games like PLO. So will you describe that as true? I wish mine was stronger, to be honest. I don't feel like that's a huge strength of mine. I feel like I have a much better emotional memory than I do like numerical or pattern recognition memory. I have a very good, in my mind, I have a very good ability to sort of remember how people play heuristically and on an emotional level, but less so exact hand breakdowns than I think other elite poker players have. I'm aware of that and try to adjust accordingly, but it's not one of my strengths. Yeah, well, I think there's all types of memories that succeed in poker. And I love that about the game. Like, you know, there's Lucky Chewy who remembers every detail of every hand. Like, he'd remember this hand if it was like, you know, played, you know, 10 years ago and he wasn't the villain or the hero in the hand. Yes. <laughs> but then there's also people whose memories, we've, we've had Trevor Savage, who also has like a photographic memory, but we've also had like world-class players who talk about how difficult it is to remember things. I had Bill Chen on. Um, and he had this great hand heads up for a bracelet against Ivy, but he couldn't remember what he had. <laughs> so I had to go to his friend who wasn't even in the tournament, but he remembered Bill telling him about it later. <laughs> so that's amazing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, you, you'll, you'll appreciate this. To me, the best person and best example of that type of, of true photographic immaculate memory is Hikaru. I mean, I, I think that's what makes him one of the absolute best chess players ever. I've gotten into chess a little bit this summer and watched him stream. And, and he'll remember move patterns from 10, 15, 20 years ago that just are unreal. Like the, the guy will remember, you know, seven, eight, nine move sequences and exact positions on a board from a game that he played once in his life in, you know, Argentina in, in 1993 and it's it's mind-blowing to, to to listen to somebody be able to recount information like that I, I can't imagine how valuable that would be in poker yeah really valuable i'm sure but you know sometimes i think having it depends on the person like sometimes having all that those memories can kind of like shut out other important things like you talk about the emotions um but yeah sure sure nakamura is incredible memory and then you know magnus carlson is also very renowned for his memory in fact like there was a documentary about him and I don't know if it was in the documentary or an interview about the documentary, but you know, he would talk about these historic games and he had them all memorize the positions, but he also had like the date of the tournament memorized and the round, like things that you would see, you would think are just like extraneous, like random information that nobody needs to know. 
But for somehow, maybe it kind of helped him create an attic in his brain. I'm not sure. That stuff's amazing. I'm, I'm very jealous of people who can do that. But I like this hand and we ended up doing it anyway, despite the fact that you had some other options, because I think that like this idea that the hand is the hand that you remember it, not the hand it actually was, is kind of an interesting concept because it's true in life as well. Like how you end up remembering something is sometimes more important than what really happened. Of course, not the case with eyewitness accounts. <laughs> but <laughs> Yes, it's unfortunate that there is... is video evidence of this hand so that my my misremembering will be punished forever. But if that wasn't the case, I, I would have gotten away with it. Yeah, well, you know, it's on the grid now too, that you know, the, the yep. whole chronicle of the, the remembered hand and the real hand. And I do want to get more into Chance though, because I've played with Chance before in No Limit Home in tournaments. And he's, of course, very difficult to play in, especially in tournaments where, you know, you're thinking... Like, I played with him in a main event table, and we had a lot of new players at our table, or, you know, new to playing a 10K, right? Yep. Um, you know, the, how the main event can be. And he's not the type to be like, oh, you know, like, you, you play with a lot of pros in the main event, and they just kind of, like, try to play against players who might be very new to the main event and, you know, be giving, you know, not know how to value their hands, right? Um, he doesn't really sit around like that. He's really just trying to battle at all times, it seems. Oh, I mean, I, I think he rightfully considers himself one of the best players in the world. Mm -hmm. The reason that I still wanted to to talk about this hand, even after I had mis misremembered it, and why one of the reasons that it, it is such a memorable hand for me is some of that the the emotional layering that went into the hand, the battle that Chance and I had been having throughout the final table. I wasn't really aware of how good of a player he was. In my mind, he was sort of this egomaniac trying to control the table in his sparkly unicorn hat. And I was taking personal offense to that. It was like, just because you don't know who I am doesn't mean I'm going to let you run me over. It really bothered me on a personal level. And I think that did play a big factor in this hand. Now we're friends <laughs> and have hung out a bit and um, we've battled in, in other avenues. So, But I, I don't think he would take offense to me saying, I think his line was atrocious. I mean, I, I really think it was not a theoretical line at all. It was a, it was an emotional line based on the fact that he clearly thought he was a superior player to me and could bully me off the hand. Um, and that I would not necessarily be calling down at a correct frequency given, given the ICM pressure and, and the personal value of the hand to me compared to, to him, uh, obviously laddering up should mean a lot more to me than it does to him in that spot. And I think there were a lot of emotional layers that go into that. And I think that's something that it's very hard for people to realize in the moment. Um, when you get in these big spots that, that you may have never been in before in your life, poker or anything, it's very tough to stay objective and make what you feel is the correct play uh, and try and keep emotions out of it. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was I was so proud of this hand is I somehow managed not to get too scared of the moment. And it was just one of those, you know what, if I haul off here and punt the biggest potential score of my life, uh, like I would do, I don't know, a week later to, to Chidwick in the 25K PLO. So be it. I feel like I'm making the correct play. And I wasn't confident enough to make the call without saying out loud for the cameras why I thought I was making the correct call, but I still made it. Well, I think that's fine. A little entertainment for everyone. Um, you said that you got into some words with Chance. Usually he's pretty friendly, even if he's running over the table. Can you describe what those like words were like? I had just taken personal offense to what I felt was a I'm better than you approach. Um, I, I think he was making a big show about ordering drinks for his whole rail in between hands. I was new enough and didn't know him enough to realize 
that I think he was mostly just enjoying the moment. But to me, as someone who this is the biggest stage I've ever been on my life, we're playing for a ton of money. I wanted the moment to be treated with a little bit more respect. And in my mind, he was making a bit of a mockery of it. His sparkly unicorn hat, his constant pausing action or order drinks, his constant, let's say, we'll call it banter with his rail. He was not shy about making sure everybody in the room knew that he thought he was the best player at the table. And he very well may have been, but I don't think that's fair when you don't know the other players at the table, especially in a game like short deck, where you have no idea what the preparation level of some of the other guys are. So I, having a bit of an ego myself, did take offense to that. And we got in a couple verbal spats just on minor minor things throughout the tournament to the point that I didn't even have social media at this point, but had had texts being sent to me by friends about some of the comments that people were making. Uh, I think the cringiest one was Daniel Negreanu tweeted out during the tournament that Chance and I should either uh, bang or box was his exact tweet because of the the banter we were having. It was just a it was a very weird scenario that I had had never been in. That's funny. So it sounds like there was like basically some some aggression, but it was like it also had this veneer of friendliness to it. There was not much of a veneer of friendliness. <laughs> it was pretty clear we did not like each other. And now you're friends with him, so And now we're yeah, we you know what? We actually not too long after that, Ben Lamb invited me to a lunch with Chance and and we talked and I got to play on a stream PLO cash game with him um, at the Run It Up stream house. And we got to talk about more there. And, and yeah, ended up becoming friends to the point that with his current, his huge challenge that's going on with Phil Galfron right now, the big PLO challenge, I, I have the true privilege of being able to text him about some of the hands and talk with him about the challenge. And it's it's been great. Now that I understand more of where he was coming from at the time, respect both his actions and, and him as a person a lot more. I, I realized that there was no malicious intent behind it. I think I was unnecessarily taking some offense to it, but at the same time, wanted to make it clear that I, I was not going to just be run over. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And and when you had this lunch with Ben Lamb, because you talked in the in your podcast with Runchucks, which is is great if you want to get to know more, Alex. You talked about how Ben Lamb also um, introduced you into this world of private games in Las Vegas, and he set up this lunch with uh, Chance. Did you actually directly talk about this experience in the lunch, or was it more just like? in the past and you just talked about other stuff and that kind of just blew it over. It's a good question. I don't think we ever actually talked about it. It was just like, you know, you know what? I think I actually, at the stream game we played, I think before we played just very briefly went up to him and, and just apologized. I said, Hey, you know, I, I realized I probably came off as a dick. I'm sorry for that. And he said, no problem. I think he just said, you know, something like no problem. So did I, we're all good. And that was it. That was the only time we ever brought it up. Well, that's nice that it was resolved. You know, in your interview with Pocket Fives, you said that you try very hard to table talk and fake talk strategy in reference to this event, the uh, the short deck, six plus, as I sometimes call it, that you won. Uh, what do you mean by fake talk strategy? And can you give us an example? I actually still do this in online games, believe it or not. I think there people overread into communication tells very badly. And I think that is something that is not utilized. We all know that when we see somebody we think is a whale or the signs of what we think is a whale, we adjust our play accordingly. And I don't think people use that to their advantage much, if ever. Um, and it's something that I really do try. It's harder for me now because I'm not unknown. But when I was completely unknown, it's something that I really tried to do and take advantage of as much as I possibly could get away with. So making really stupid strategy comments or 
offering bad unsolicited advice after hands, things like that, I, I think really goes a long way to, to not only adjusting how play, people play against you, but adjusting how people play against you in a way that you know how they're going to adjust, which is a very hard thing to do in poker a lot of the time. So can you give us an example, um, maybe from one of these private games that you talk about playing or from the six plus tournament? Let's see, what would be a good example of, of like fake whale-ish tabletop? Like if somebody makes a bad call on a river, a call that you, you simply know is losing for whatever reason, let's say they're just very clearly too far down in their range. It's very clearly a losing call, you know, giving one of the like, oh, that's, you know, that, that's disgusting. Uh, you know, there's a very genuine, like, wow, that, you know, that that's really gross. There's, there's just nothing you could do there type things. Or let's see what, what's an, oh, a tilt fake tilt is huge. It's really important not to make it like a really bad beat, just like a, a, a medium. Let's say you lose a 60, 40, right. Acting like it's the end of the world and you're, you're so unlucky. I think that's a great way to really make people think of you as a wreck because people think pro players, experienced, really good players don't overreact to single hands or even groups of hands for the most part and, and are able to control their, their mental game. Whereas if somebody thinks you're an amateur player who's on tilt, they're going to adjust their game accordingly. And I think that that's just a, a really handy one to do. And that's one I do online. If I take a bad beat online, I'll rage in the chat box intentionally. And I think it's absolutely gotten people to play differently against me over the years. And, and it's great. Do you need acting experience for this? Like, No, not at all. I think you just, as somebody who, who tilts naturally very well, I think you just draw on that. Oh, so you're drawing on your natural experience. Right, yes. When does it just become real? Because I imagine if you lose a big pot... Like, obviously, like, you are upset in some sense, but, you know, it's it's fishy to be like, oh, like, I, I run so bad or I'm so unlucky. So where is that line? Because I think, you know, if you start talking about it, it must become more true. I mean, the simplest answer to that, I guess, would be when it's not a conscious decision. I see. It becomes real when you're not doing it on purpose. I hear that. That makes sense. You're not doing it on purpose, so therefore it's not real. But... It could kind of like, um, I think, you know, just by speaking those words of disappointment and anger, it probably makes you like slightly more angry and disappointed. Personally, it might be a little counterintuitive, but I think it does the opposite. I think fake venting sort of helps. It like, it puts me in check almost in a way. It's like, as long as I know that I'm doing it as mockery, it helps take some of the sting out of the situation because I'm sort of in a way making fun of myself, right? I'm like fake tilting and... Because I'm fake tilting, because it's a fake, it's like a conscious thought process, it's already giving me a layer of separation from the bad beat. It's like I'm already choosing another action after I've taken the bad beat and sort of distancing myself from it in a way. So I think it, it, in, in some cases, it, it helps me calm down. This sounds silly, but it's almost fun. That makes sense because you kind of are confusing people. It's fun to try to sound tilty. Coming up with the things to say and the right way to do it is interesting. Have you ever gotten called out on it? Um... I'm not sure. That's a really good question. I'm actually not sure. Not in any sort of serious way. I, I've been joked about it. Like people have gone like, oh, ha ha, shut up. That's that's nothing. Type, like you can't be serious type thing. But never in like uh, you're doing this in an intentional way to manipulate the way people play against you type way. All right. Well, maybe after this podcast. <laughs> As I've become more known, which is not a good thing <laughs> when you're trying to play private games in poker but has been inevitable with the, the WSOP success and, and the TV games and stuff. 
I think my use of this strategy has dropped significantly. Right. Totally. Makes sense. And what about the private game scene right now? It's San Francisco online. Like, what is your play like? Online, it was amazing for the first four to five months of quarantine. And then the people who were losing lost as much as they wanted to. They were willing to spend on on their poker entertainment value. And the games really started to dry up. I don't feel comfortable playing in live private games right now for, for very obvious reasons with the pandemic. For anybody watching this years down the road, there's a, a huge pandemic going on and it's simply not safe to do. I'm very unfortunately really not playing in, in almost any private games right now. It's It's been mostly public games. There's a couple semi-private, like uh, I would say private groups online that I play in that have decent games going, but a lot of it is, is just the regular games. Well, you must be jonesing for some live action again when everybody gets vaccinated, huh? Yes, I am sort of ashamed to admit that I've played some live at Bellagio and, and Aria when the big games are running. To me, it's safer than the private games because at least there, there's plexiglass, Every there's rules and regulations, the dealers are all forcing you to wear your mask. You can't talk over the plexiglass. It feels at least a little bit safer than a private game with close proximity, no rules, everybody's drinking, being sloppy, et cetera. So I, I have gone and played some some live PLO when the games were good enough and we've gotten some some 50 and 100 and, and stuff running at Bellagio. But yeah, I, I can't wait for like the real LA private games to come back. Those are both a lot of fun and very profitable. Right. Um, those are the ones that you described so memorably in um, Run Chuck's podcast. You know, when you describe not being able to talk and the plexiglass, and I compared that with your description of walking into this, like, this um, X, right. X, what was it, NFL or? Oh, the guy, uh, we, we, one of the main guys' houses is, uh, is an NBA Hall of Famer. Yeah. An NBA, okay. So, you, you know, professional athletes, you know, all of the glamour. You can describe it better. I mean, what, what it would be like the perfect night back, um, because all of us are, of course, fantasizing about this light at the end of the tunnel. And. Maybe by the time some people listen to this, there will be more things opening up. I certainly hope for that. But um, it's coming. Let's hope so. And when that day comes, just paint us like the, the perfect picture beyond, of course, winning a lot of money. Like, of course, you want that. It starts with that for sure. But uh, I would just love to get back to, to me, what makes those so enjoyable more than any details or anything like that is people are playing for fun. And I think that's something that's missing from a lot of high stakes poker. So for me, the perfect atmosphere environment, why I like those is just the sitting around, joking, drinking, the private chef on hand, the poker, while the amount of money makes it impossible for it to be secondary at any point, isn't the end all be all of the night, right? And that's, that's what I, I think I, I really enjoy. It's just a, it's a, it's a comfortable, fun atmosphere to be playing high stakes. Again, a lot of people are going to think is like a, almost a contradiction of itself, right? How can you play for life-changing money and be relaxed and have fun? But that's just the nature you have to in these situations. Otherwise, you're not invited, especially as, as a quote-unquote poker pro at this point. I would never get invited if I'm sitting there grinding the game. So I, I'm almost forced to have fun, at the, which again, sounds a bit silly, but is true. I'm, I'm essentially forced to have fun in these environments, which is relieving in a way. It's nice to know that I don't have a choice and I, I am going to be required to, to take some shots to get my seat, some literal shots of alcohol, not shot taking is in my, my stack depth and, uh, and just sort of enjoy the show. Did you ever have to take a shot and you were like, you're, you're not, you, you know, I mean, if you're not eating a lot, you probably are going to get drunk pretty fast. Did you ever just like throw it out or anything? No, um, but there is a game that I played in for a while that I, I had won a couple too many sessions in, and we had a requirement in the game for me to get 
to keep my seat that I, I had to be drunk by sunset. That was an, an ongoing rule in one of the games I was playing in for a little bit. So you had to be drunk by sunset. How did they determine drunk? Is this like a reverse? <laughs> it was very subjective. <laughs> it was in a breathalyzer test. <laughs> yes, it, it was very subjective. I think they, they loosely tracked the number of shots that they served me. And um, so you had to be drunk by sunset. That's amazing. And wait, what about sunrise? Sunrise, I think I had to be back sober again by. Otherwise, otherwise we were going to be in for a very long day. Those, those oh, that, You know what? That would be the, you were asking about like what the perfect, so the perfect, the perfect games are the ones where we start as a nice, friendly 25, 50 PLO game and everybody has, you know, maybe a hundred bigs deep on the table. And then six to seven hours in, we're up to the 100, 200, 400 game. And then six to seven hours later, we've graduated to just a full random mix game where everybody's picked a game for the mix and the sun has come up. The girls are all now passed out from the night before bodies are just strewn across the table, the living room, everything. And there's like six of us who by some miracle are still conscious and we've switched to a high stakes mix game and everybody's trying to pick a game. They think they have an edge on everybody else at, but in reality, we're all terrible at mix games and it's just a complete shit show. And it's a blast. It's just so much, it's as much fun as you could have playing those stakes in games that you barely know. And when you mention girls, you mean like cocktail waitresses, right? Are, are there ever women playing in the game? We actually have had a couple women playing in the game, but correct. Mostly mostly models or waitresses that are there sort of to provide, to provide atmosphere, serve drinks, things like that. The women you have played, have they been mostly professionals or from like the amateur side? No, they have been very wealthy non-professionals. Okay, so a lot of times people ask this question in interviews, but I feel like for you, it could be like almost a real life scenario. If you had to pick three people to play in your your game, let's say more for fun reasons than for like winning money against them, you know, three celebrities or, you know, people that you admire, who would you pick? Yeah, so like, we're just playing like a time, like the, the money is not significant, right? Yeah, you don't need to pick like really rich people who you could take all their money. Poker players or, or just like life in general? No, life in general. Yeah, like celebrity players. Oh my, um, wow, that's a, this is a question I, I feel like I need to prepare for. Oh, you can take your time and you can pick less than three. One of them would have to be a chef. I'm, I'm enormous foodie. Um, that's my biggest expense in, in life really is, is traveling and stuff for food. So one of them would have to be a chef. And I'm trying to think of who I would pick. My goodness. You know, actually who I, Dominique Crenn. Are you familiar with that name? Mm-mm. She's one of the top chefs in the world. She's based in San Francisco. I've gotten to meet her a couple times at her restaurant there. And she's French and, and has moved to America and opened up sort of her dream in San Francisco. And, and in, in another world, what she is doing is what I would love to do. Her sort of progression through the restaurant industry and, and to become a world-renowned chef and one of the most talented chefs on the planet. And then she's opened up a, a, essentially just a wine bar that serves French bites to go, I mean, I'm a huge wine snob as well. And she would, I would just love to talk to her for hours. So I I think she would have to be on that list from the poker world. I mean, this is a really boring answer because I played with him and get to play with him, but it's just Phil, Phil Galfond, because he is in my mind, the greatest PLO brain that exists. So just the ability to get hands in against him whenever possible for my own selfish learning reasons, I couldn't turn turn down that chance. I know picking somebody in poker is really boring, but I just want to watch him play PLO as much as possible. The way he thinks about the game is incredible. And I, I would never be able to turn down a chance to, to learn from him. And then 
let's see, I probably have to go someone from the sports world, Joe Montana. I'm a huge Niners fan. I've been an unabashed Montana over Brady flag bear for my whole life and fought that argument many times. He's arguably the greatest of all time. And, and I think it would be really, really entertaining to play with, with somebody competitive because uh, as I've learned from, from playing with, with some athletes, uh, these guys take it really seriously. And it's always fun to have somebody like that at the table. Yeah, I just played a charity tournament um, that uh, Kelly Minkin ran and um, the winner was Richard Seymour. Nice. That's awesome. That doesn't surprise me at all. Oh, yeah. He seemed like he played really well, too. He, he crushed me in a hand. I, uh, I got fifth in it. And um, the first prize was a WSOP seat. Oh, wow. He seemed like he was taking it really seriously. I and mean, he has like uh, over half a million in winnings and poker. Yeah, he's played some poker, right? I think I've seen him at event. He, he's definitely played some poker. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not that surprising. But indeed, I mean, these, these athletes tend to get pretty good at poker quickly, especially if they learn how to fold because I feel like the aggressive stuff comes pretty naturally, you know? And they just can't help themselves, right? Once once they're involved in a competitive field, their drive to just be good at it is so natural. They they, they really just can't help themselves but put in the time and the effort to, to try to become good at whatever they're doing that's competitive. And I love your answer with Phil Galfon too, because a lot of times when people are older and you're you're young, you're still in your 20s, right? Yeah. Barely, but yeah. There's been a lot of studies that have shown that the older you are, the more you value time with the people that you really respect and love. And then like when you're younger, you're like more interested in like the celebrity angle. But if you like ask people close to death, like who they could spend more time with, of course, they're like the people that they love most in their family. <laughs> like, duh. I like that you've kind of, you've kind of had in that, that vibe very, very early on. And speaking of Phil Galfond, you do um, do Run It Once commentary right now, right? You want to tell us a little more about that as we close out? Yeah, I'm doing commentary weekly for the Galfond Challenge. So that's on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Thalo. I'm also running a staking program for Run It Once Poker. So I, um, and that is pinned on my Twitter, which is just Thalo Poker. I also, if you're ever interested in, for anybody out there, learning the basics of PLO, the most effective tool in the world for that right now by far is called PLO Visions. It's a essentially a solver, but I know that word scares a lot of people. So it's really like a solver simulator. Uh, it has a bunch of pre-solves in it that you can very quickly look up hands and things for PLO that Run It Once does. And I, I have an affiliate deal with them as well. So if you're ever interested in to get an incredible value, you can even just try it out for a month. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or something like that. For people who it doesn't come naturally to them to not be stressed if they're playing for big money. Do you have any tips on how people should get into private games? For how to get into private games? Or prepare themselves to get into better private games. Like what they need to work on if maybe that doesn't come naturally to them. Yeah, that's tough because I think that's where everybody really wants to be. So the two most important things, in my opinion, for access to games, right? You need a reason to get invited. And the two reasons that people are invited is either you're losing <laughs> You're invited because you're a losing player or you're invited because people want to play with you despite you winning. So if you want to be a winning player, it's very important for you to figure out what your draw is, whether that's going to be personality, whether that's going to be your networking skills. Can you provide benefits in other areas? So let's say you're, you have good crypto knowledge and, and you can do some, I wouldn't even call it coaching, but advising to, to some of the game runners and something like that. Maybe you have friends in the food industry that, you know, people want reservations. You, you got to have some sort of appeal. If, you, if people are going to invite you knowing that you're going to take their money, you need to be able to offer something other than that, right? And 
Um, that's going to be networking or personality based most of the time. And um, it's really up to you to figure out what you can do to position yourself like that. That's brilliant advice. Very good. And you can find Alex at Talio Poker on Twitter. And of course, your, your Twitch channel is the same name. Yeah, Twitch is just, fortunately, Twitch is just Dallow. So Twitch is just Twitch TV, uh, twitch.tv slash Dallow. And then Twitter is Dallow Poker. You can literally just Google Dallow Poker. The easiest thing to do. And I think all that just pops up. Great. When I leave links to all of that also in the show notes. So big thank you to um, Fallow Poker for giving us nine six off, not in quite the way that we expected it, but a very thought provoking hand, which kind of reflects on memory and its value and the way that we might sometimes misremember things. Thanks again, Fallow Poker on nine six offsuit. We had a lot of fun and yeah, I can't wait till Everything opens up so we can continue this conversation in person. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it and enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, very enjoyable. Thank you so much. Thalo Poker on 9-6 Offsuit or 6-9 Offsuit. Either one. Thanks for listening to ThePokerGrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent